I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. And in this week's episode, we're going back to July and August of the year 1014, to the Balkans and the Bulgarian Empire, with its hills and mountains, valleys, rivers, and densely forested regions, a place where the Byzantines attempted continuously to establish themselves and for 40 years could do nothing against the empire of Tsar Samuel. That is, until Basil the Bulgar Slayer struck at the Battle of Clyden. All right, thanks for joining us again, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode on Klontarf and Svoldor, uh, and then last week's joint episode on Ipsis. It was a lot of fun recording with Brett, uh, so I, I hope to do that in the future. Uh, this week's episode, however, is going to take us to the Balkans Peninsula, that that very, very regularly uh, chaotic region of the world, uh, part of Europe that seems to almost always be in some kind of turmoil. And that was no different than back in 1014, where our story takes place. But before that, let's do a little bit of background. Uh, the Roman Empire split in 395. I believe it was uh, Diocletian. I, th- I want to say it was Diocletian, but it, I might be wrong there. Um, anyhow, it was decided that the empire was too large for one emperor to control it, or at least control it well. So they split it into a Western Empire and an Eastern Empire. Uh, obviously, the Western Empire eventually collapses, and the Eastern Empire exists in this very amoeba-like state for quite some time, even after the Western Empire collapse. Um, you've got a very, very wealthy core city. So the city of Constantinople, uh, Byzantium, eventually Istanbul, is it's a nexus point. It's a linchpin geographically connecting the Asian, Asian continent to the um, uh, European continent. It's where the Black Sea meets the Aegean Sea and eventually the Mediterranean. It's an extremely, extremely wealthy part of the world, which is also why uh, it, we see a lot of conflict in that area. I believe the city of Adrianople uh, has seen by some accountings, uh, the most conflict or the most fighting of any one place on the globe. I'm sure that's up for debate, but uh, it goes to show you that there's parts of this area that have been fought over dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times throughout history. Uh, and that's part of the, the kind of the life cycle of the Balkans. So the Eastern Empire is constantly kind of growing and then shrinking and growing and shrinking. It really, it seems to be very, very dependent on who is the uh, emperor of the Eastern Empire. And at the beginning of our story in the, uh, the 600s or the 7th century AD, a group of Bulgars cut their own little empire out of a, a region of the Balkans uh, that would now be called Bulgaria. Um, and they create the Bulgarian Empire. They are fierce. They are, um, they are very, very intense warriors. The type that 
typically give Romans nightmares. And the Byzantines would call themselves Romans. They would consider themselves Romans. So I'm going to say Roman, uh, and I don't want you to immediately think of some uh, some guy from Capua or from uh, the Apennines region. I'm talking about the Eastern Roman Empire, but they considered themselves just the Roman Empire. Uh, the Bulgarian Empire cuts its way into existence in the 7th century, and over the next few hundred years, you have a, a weird kind of existence where the Bulgarians raid into Byzantine lands, then the Byzantines or the Romans will send an army into the Bulgarian territories, but they can't find them or they can't really get them to grips. Uh, the way that the Bulgarians fight is, is really uh, tailor-made for the region. And the region of, of the Bulgarian Empire, the, this part of the Balkans, is heavily forested uh, or densely forested. It's, all, uh, it's riddled with rivers and mountains and valleys, lots of, of craggy passes that can't really be traversed. So you're forced to take regular routes and regular passes. That makes it easy, easy to... Uh, either defend this area or to create a very dangerous uh, kind of de defense in depth. So any Byzantine army that's going to come into this region has to really be careful because they can find themselves quickly cut up in ambushes, in raids, uh, and this we'll see kind of plays a role in the Battle of Clyden. In 968, Kievan Rus invaded Bulgaria from the north, putting pressure on the Bulgarian Empire from that side. And the Byzantines came from the southeast and started to put pressure from that direction. By the year 976, the late 970s, Bulg the Bulgarian Empire is shrinking. It's becoming uh, smaller and smaller, kind of rump state in the western portion of the uh, what was originally the Bulgarian Empire, pretty much the Albanian Macedonian highlands uh, is where where the the Bulgarians are getting kind of sequestered into that area. In 976, Basil II takes control of the Byzantines. He is a interesting character. He basically, when he was uh, he was born into the into the uh, royal family. His father dies too, uh, too young for him to take power, so he is appointed a regent, which we see time and time again, usually ends poorly for either the regent or the child uh, leader that they were governing in the name of. Uh, in the case of Bas uh, Basil II, the regent basically ignores him uh, once he comes of age and continues to rule as if he were the the rightful emperor. Uh, Basil kind of plays the long con on him and allows him to kind of uh, keep up this facade of, of him being the one in control. Eventually lies really low to the ground and then pops up after having secured the support of the military and a lot of the wealthy um, wealthy members of the empire and overthrows the regent in 976 he takes power as the rightful emperor and he decides that he's going to 
target Bulgaria as his first real campaign on his own. This is interesting because what we're about to see is a very confident young man, a young emperor, get his rear end handed to him, and he'll take the lesson in in stride and eventually apply it very successfully to his later military career. So uh, upon entering Bulgaria, uh, Basil believes that he is just going to kind of walk through and um, and the country is going to fall to his his command. Uh, that does not happen at the Trojan gates or the gates of Trojan. He is not only utterly defeated, but he almost dies in the process. I, I saw a couple of different accounts where uh, he had to escape with multiple different horses. Uh, there was uh, possibly an injury, and it seems like it was a, a close-run thing for young Basil uh, as he first faces off with the Caesar or Tsar of Bulgaria, the Tsar of the Bulgarian Empire named Samuel, who at this point... I believe, is 40 years old. He's like uh, 15, 14 or 15 years older than Basil. Uh, so he's 40, Basil's 25, 26, and they're facing off at the Trajan Gates, and uh, Basil II gets his tail whipped. Basil retreats, and for the next few years, he spends the vast majority of his time focused on the eastern part of his empire. The Fatimid, uh, the Fatimid, Empire is giving him trouble. There's a couple of uprisings uh, that he has to deal with. And he goes about kind of getting his house in order in the eastern part of the Byzantine Empire. What we know about Basil II is that he is a stern, determined figure. This is a man who really learned at a young age that if you, if you say something to your enemy... You need to keep that word because your word is your bond. So if you say to uh, your opponent that if they surrender, then they'll be forgiven and they'll be given their lives and they'll be paid and maybe brought into the fold and they'll be allowed to uh, live, you know, well and, and keep their riches and keep their lives and their families. But if they don't surrender, you're going to uh, impale them cut off their hands, blind them, then you have to do that. Because if you don't, then that is a sign that you're weak to your opponent. Uh, and he, as we get forward in this story, you'll see that that, um, that very well becomes a, a, a key component of Basil's uh, legacy and his identity. So after about 20 years of campaigning almost exclusively in the East, Basil II comes back to the Balkans, and he's ready for a, a real showdown with the Bulgarians. Uh, from the years 1005 to 1014, we really don't have much information, but we know that there was likely campaigning going back and forth. Uh, there's a seesaw nature to warfare in the Balkans, especially at this time, and especially when it's con uh, concerning the Byzantine Empire. A lot of the times it depends on who's in command and who they are commanding. And so you have the Bulgarians victorious and pushing out a army of, of Byzantines that had raided their lands. And then you, at the same time, 
from a different uh, from a different front or different part of the border, you have a Bal- uh, Byzantine army raiding deep into Bulgarian lands, burning, raping, pillaging, destroying fortresses. So there's this kind of back and forth that likely was happening throughout that decade uh, and the 14 or so years leading up to Clyden. The reason that Basil wants this area is that he needs to have control of the Bulgarian region because it gives him a, a geostrategic buffer zone. So the Danube River allows him to have a defensive buffer from the, the Kievan Rus, it also allows him access to the Danube, which is a, a vital trading uh, network and a, a wealthy, wealthy region. So if he can get that, then he's, he's really set himself up well in the western portion of the B- Byzantine Empire. It also keeps his flank protected on that side of the empire, which I'm sure would be a, a major concern for the Byzantine emperor because he's constantly surrounded by enemies. It's not like with the Roman Empire in the West, the traditional Roman Empire, you have that peninsula of Italy. There's they're very protected. They're they're isolated from potential enemies. That's partially why it took so long to conquer. Not the case with the Byzantine Empire where Constantinople Constantinople Byzantium is surrounded by potential enemies. And it's it's really impressive what the Bulgarians ha- were able to do for about 40 years. The uh, Tsar Samuel and his coterie of brothers and generals were able to fend off the much larger, much wealthier Byzantine forces using a very traditional mountain style of warfare that consisted of raids, of hit and runs, of ambushes, of defense in depth. They created that mystique that echoes the the fear of the the Teutonic German that you would have after the Romans lost at the Tetobarger uh, forest or uh, the the fear that the Romans had of the Picts. This kind of you can't see what's going on in the darkness of that deep forest. You can't see past the tree line, but you know that there are there are men with weapons there waiting to do you harm. And that's exactly what the Byzantine armies would have sensed as they traveled the well-known paths and passes of, of the Balkans. Because there are only so many roads and there are only so many ways to traverse the region it was well known that if a Byzantine army was trying to get to point A, they had to go through point B. And so the whole way, those soldiers are looking over their shoulder, wondering what's behind that tree line, what's behind those bushes, what's on the other side of that mountain, what's in the mist. Which is why the Byzantines rightly attempted to, or regularly uh, tried to revert back to traditional Roman campaigning policies. That's building a camp every night, no matter what. Never put that camp near hills or forests or any kind of obstruction to your line of fire or your ability to see the entire field because you never know how quickly and how uh, stealthily the enemy might be able to sneak up right next to your camp and attack. 
they had to cross dozens and dozens of rivers when campaigning in this region. And every time they did it, they had to set up the uh, line of battle, basically crossing the river in a way that they were prepared to take on an attack in the rear, an attack in the front. They couldn't get caught unawares or off guard because if they did with you know half of their army on one side half of the other it's very possible that a much smaller force could tear them apart uh, this kind of attention to detail and a, a throwback to the old roman ways of campaigning uh, is a very safe way of doing things but in its safety it makes for a very slow campaign it it kind of complicates your whole process because now you have to move slower because you have to scout every single pass, every road, everything has to be looked at and divined as to whether or not the enemy is there or near. Uh, then you, because that takes so long, you have to bring more food, which means that your, your men are weighed down more and you have to bring more pack animals and more logistical support, which further slows down your travel because oxen can only go so far. And if you're even taking oxen, some of these passes and some of these campaigns, you can't even do that. The men have to carry their own fodder, which means that they're taking extra weight, which slows them down. Uh, the whole process is extremely laborious and created some real uh, dangerous situations that often ended in disaster for the Byzantines, but not, well, not for a portion of the year 1014. In the late summer 1014, we have uh, Basil II deciding that he is going to, once and for all, go after the 70-year-old Samuel, Tsar of Bulgaria, and finally bring the Bulgarians to heel. And Basil is a spry 56 years old who is essentially, as they say, married to the service. He is basically for the uh, entirety of his his career as emperor. He's been on campaign, he's been at war, uh, and he is... A professional at it. He's very. He's learned a lot since the thrashing he took at the gates of Trajan. He knows exactly how he's going to execute the campaign against the Bulgarians to bring them to to battle. And that's partially why the the Bulgarian Empire lasted as long as it did. Is that you would regularly have uh, the campaign from the Byzantines go into the Bulgarians and then find no army to bring to bear, which is a smart tactic. If you're outnumbered and outgunned, just don't fight. Let the enemy chase you around, get tired, stretch itself out, weaken itself, and then pick it off in ambushes throughout its return. Uh, that's what the Bulgarians regularly did. Or when the Byzantines were in their land chomping at the bit to find them, all of a sudden the Bulgarian army would pop up in an unprotected southern portion or a western portion of the Byzantine Empire and do its own raiding, which actually takes place in the lead-up to Clyden as well. The source for this particular battle and the kind of events after it is John Skylitz's. Uh, I will probably mispronounce any of these uh, Greek names, so I apologize. But John Skalitsis gives us, again, no real idea about the 10 years leading up to 1014. But he opens up or he, he gives us insight into the events 
leading up to Clyden by telling us that Basil musters an army at Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, and the army that he puts together is a fairly large one. It's unknown as to the the exact numbers, and we'll get into it in a little while why I think some of these numbers are, are very clearly exaggerated. But let's say, for, for argument's sake, that he shows up at Thessalonica with 30,000 men, and he decides to push into the mountains on the southern portion of the Bulgarian border, heading for the Clyden Pass, which would eventually bring him to the major cities and fortress uh, of Tsar Samuel in Bulgaria. Now, because it had been regularly uh, attacked by the Byzantines in the past, and because it was the only route, uh, route that he could, uh, that Basil II could use to get to the regions that he was aiming for, Samuel, the Tsar of Bulgaria, recognizes Clyden is going to be the, the key to the whole situation. So he musters his army, flies it to the Clyden Pass area, and builds a wall and ditches and earthworks in between these two mountains that kind of uh, work as, as bookends, and then in between them runs the Clyden Pass in a little valley. And so across that valley, across the pass, he builds these really thick, stout walls of logs. Uh, in front of them, there's ditches and earthworks, and you can assume that those are booby-trapped. We can safely bet that they're using every little trick in the book to try and make this as painful a uh, position to attack as possible for Basil II. And in fact, Basil soon finds out that that is exactly what they have done, because he attacks as soon as he reaches the Clyden Pass, and he repeatedly is repelled with heavy, heavy losses. The sources don't really tell us exactly what the, the losses were, because they don't even tell us how many men are here. But you can bet that the, the attackers trying to make it across the ditches, make it across the earthworks, and then looking up at a maybe 10 to 15 foot tall wall they are really in for a world of hurt. Uh, and there's really no way around these walls. The way that they're anchored into the mountainside on either side kind of makes for a, a very, very strong defensive position that Samuel of Bulgaria has, has put his men in. Uh, Basil II also has a, a situation arising because Samuel II has sent or Samuel of Bulgaria, I'm sorry, has sent a smaller contingent of his army south to harass Thessalonica, uh, Thess Thessalonica. Again, I apologize for these terrible pronunciations. But uh, what Basil II finds out is eventually he learns that that second attack, that kind of diversionary attack by the Tsar of the Bulgarians, fails in its attempt and ends up allowing Basil to receive a, a group of reinforcements. So that failed for Samuel. Basil II is going to try a similar deception, a similar flanking maneuver here. 
He has a lieutenant, a general, Nicephorus, who comes up to him and says, basically, hey, boss, this is not working. We cannot bash our heads up against this wall until we're all dead. Let me take some guys. I will go around the southern mountain. Uh, the, the, I've got it in my notes. Hold on one second. The, the Belisitsa, Belisitsa mountain. And he's going to go around that and then try and come up either on the the right-hand flank of Samuel or, even better, in the rear of Samuel's defensive position. So traversing around, he he sets off south with his men, and they're going around this mountain, but it's extremely, again, densely forested, lots of scrub and undergrowth, and just really hard to get through. The other thing, too, is once they get through that, they have to then scale up or, or climb up the side of the Belisitsa mountain and try and position themselves in a, a spot where they won't be noticed, but they'll be ready to attack uh, the following day. So the the next day, uh, Basil II is trying to take the heat off of Nicephorus and keep the Bulgarians from noticing what's going on. So he's continuing these frontal attacks and continuing to get repelled and suffer heavy casualties. Well, this all ends up working because Nicephorus gets the, gets his men into a position on the side of that mountain that they can see their enemy and they just go ham. They absolutely pour down the side of this mountain. They're, you know, they are just war crying they're they're charging as fast as their feet can take them and they're flinging themselves onto the rear and the right flank of the of Tsar Samuel's entire army and from there it is chaos because at the same time that they are raining death down on the rear of the Bulgarian army Basil II gets the smart idea to amp up the pressure, and he then sends his men in a huge wave against those the, that walled fortification, and they bring scaling ladders, and you end up having a, a really tight spot for the Bulgarians. They are trapped between a rock and a hard place, and in this case, that rock is Basil II, and that hard place is Nicephorus. So, as the battle that is not really a battle devolves even further into chaos it's a it's an utter rout the bulgarians start to flee and they are just trying to do everything they in their ability to get further west get out of the way of basil and nicephorus now here's where we start to see a little bit of confusion between the facts and the sources, because the following battle, uh, the the battle of uh, Sturmitsa, Sturmitsa, has Basil getting kind of messed up a little bit, having his his own army, his victorious army at Clyden, getting slapped around. We'll work our way there, but it's worth noting that at this point, I think the sources start to diverge from the reality a little bit. At Clyden, the chaos is complete. The battle is a total 
Byzantine victory. And according to the sources, 15,000 prisoners are taken. 15,000 Bulgarian soldiers are captured by Basil and the Byzantine army. Now, here's where I think it's, it's worth taking a step back and breaking down numbers just a little bit. It seems unlikely that 15,000 captives could have been taken by any Byzantine army of this period. 15,000 men would be a huge, well, would be a large army at the time. So if that's the captives, say a third of the men are killed, a third of the men are captured, and a third of the men for the Bulgarians escape, you're talking about a 45,000-man army, almost 50,000. The logistics of that alone seems uh, seem unlikely that the Bulgarians could have kept that in the field. Uh, and the space that you're looking at, these, these mountain passes, these are not huge battlefields. They're not the open plains of the steppes. They're not the deserts of North Africa or the Middle East. Uh, they're not... It doesn't seem likely that you could have a 45 or 50,000 man Bulgarian army. And then also that would have, if you go by the numbers, that means that you probably have a 75,000 man Byzantine army. So you're, you're talking about 125,000 men total between the two uh, in the region. It just doesn't work. So that 15,000 number prisoner is uh, unlikely and probably quite a bit less, maybe even less than half of that. But, as I've said a thousand times, I prefer the legend. I want the myth. Give me the history the way it was told uh, for generations and for centuries. So, here's where Clyden kind of goes from an interesting battle to a next-level tragedy. Because after the Battle of Clyden, Basil is victorious, and he's doing what he should be doing. He's marching after the enemy, and he is following the crushed Bulgarians. And he gets to the city of Sturmitsa, and it's here that he decides, all right, I'm going to, there's a lot of trapped Bulgarian refugees and, and men from Clyden in this city. I'm going to lay it under siege, and, or I'm going to put it under siege, and I'm going to start to uh, just methodically take this enemy apart. At the Battle of Clyden, Samuel of Bulgaria, the Tsar of Bulgaria, had escaped. Again, this was a, uh, a harrowing journey for him, almost a total reversal of Trajan's, uh, Tra Trajan's Gates, where Samuel had to, like, uh, he had to take his son's horse and maybe had a couple of horses, and he was basically fleeing for his very existence. But he's safe, and he's off trying to recoup and re recover his army and, and gather them for the continuation of the fight. While Basil is putting Sturmitsa under siege, he also has a, a smaller contingent under his, uh, his favorite lieutenant, Botan Botanitis. And he sends him on a, another one of those enveloping moves uh, where he's trying to open up another road and access point into 
the rear of the Bulgarians. But the Bulgarians are wise to it this time. And at the at a particular gorge, probably the Custerino, according to Richard Overy, uh, the entire Bulg- uh, Byzantine force under Bustinitis is killed to a man, utterly destroyed. The effect of that is huge because it, first off, it sends Basil back. He decides to disengage from Sturmitsa and in fact, retreat all the way back to Byzantine lands on the other side of the border. He is in a position now where he believes that he's done enough damage in this campaign and he's suffered enough that we'll call it even and we'll uh, lick our wounds and see where, where the dust, you know, when the dust settles, see where the pieces land. When he finds out that Bostonitis was killed in that uh, in that attempt at outmaneuvering the Bulgarians, apparently Basil flies into a rage. A violent man from the very beginning of his reign, uh, when he did take control of the government, the man who had been the regent and who had tried to usurp his throne was uh, the men that followed him, the army that had followed that regent usurper. They were impaled and slaughtered. The the people that Basil II fought, the Fatimids, and the, the other people that he fought in the east, all suffered grievously, having their hands and arms chopped off uh, as punishment for rebellion in his mind. That's what it was considered. So when he finds out his favorite general was killed and the Bulgarians are maybe still going to give him a hard time, Basil decides to send a message. So he takes the supposed 15,000 prisoners that he has on hand, and he orders them all to be blinded, save for the 100th man in every century. That one man gets to keep one eye. And the reason being is that Basil is going to take this mass of shuffling, moaning, blind misery and he's gonna turn it west and point it in the direction of the czar of bulgaria and basically pat him on the ass as they head out of the city and head back home and so over a period of months remember clyden takes place in uh, uh clyden takes place in august maybe late july early august and you have the shuffling mass of, of wounded Bulgarians finally making it back to their homeland, uh, their capital city, in October. And it's in October, early October, that they shuffle through the city gates, moaning and crying and weeping through the black holes where their eyes used to be, that Samuel, the now 70-year-old czar of Bulgaria, who was already in his sickbed, who was already deathly ill because of the, the shock and the strain and horror that he had to go through to just survive Clyden, looks down upon his now-returned army and sees the, the horror that was uh, put upon it by Basil II, he apparently has some kind of like, uh, some kind of, of, of fit. It broke his heart. 
apparently on October 6th, 1014, Samuel, the Tsar of Bulgaria, has his heart broken and suffers a massive heart attack and dies upon looking at the, the blinded ruin that was once his army. Now, that again seems probably unlikely, uh, but I like that story. I think it is an incredible, incredible little uh, insight into Basil II, Samuel of Bulgaria, the time period. So with that in mind, uh, we'll wrap up the Battle of Clyden by just running through what happens almost immediately after. Ba uh, Basil II realizes that there is a power vacuum now in Bulgaria, so he's going to take advantage of it. And over the next four years, there's just, again, seesaw battles. Uh, both sides have victories. Both sides have major defeats. Neither side can seem to gain the upper hand. And then in 1018, Basil again campaigns, returns to Byzantium, and then the Bulgarian Empire basically collapses in on itself. He marches in. He essentially absorbs the old Bulgarian Empire and completes the conquest of Samuel, Tsar of Bulgaria's once independent country. So, that is the Battle of Clyden, a truly interesting story. I can't uh, suggest enough. You pick up the book 100 Battles, uh, A History of War and 100 Battles by Professor Richard Overy. It wasn't the main source I used, but it's a great one. I've used it over and over, and I, I suggest you guys pick up a copy if you get a chance. A couple other notes for the upcoming weeks. I am working on a podcast with Aaron McLean. He is a fantastic, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy, and his show is called School of War. It's, from, it's put out by Nebulous Podcasts. I am the uh, lead producer on the show. He actually had Richard Overy in the latest episode. It's an interview-driven show. Uh, he's had H.R. McMaster. He's had H.W. Brands, uh, Jeremy Black, a lot of, of great uh, military thinkers, writers, professors, historians, and then a lot of like active uh, doctrine and theory people are involved as well. So check that out. Again, in School of War on anywhere you can find a podcast. Next week, I know that we had Civitate or Civitate, uh, which is another Viking battle, but I'm going to just change it up. I think I'm good with the medieval run of battles and I think I want to hop up into uh, the next epoch that we're going to cover. So I'm going to bring us up to the Age of Enlightenment. Uh, we are going to pop into the 1700s. I will put up the four battles that we'll be covering over the next couple days and uh, you guys can look forward to that. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, corrections, Go ahead and find me on social media or email the show, and I will address them as quick as I can. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we have a live show every Wednesday at 8. Tonight is going to be kind of a recap of this and a little bit of talk on School of War. Uh, but other than that, I, I really appreciate you guys coming and joining me for these little talks once a week. I look forward to bringing more to you. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and share, share, share. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good one.